Hello, this is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler. I'm usually your host, and I am the founding principal of Adamantine Energy. Uh, regular listeners know well my colleague Ann Carto, and if you know Ann well, you know that she has more good ideas than there are hours in the day. So sometimes I have to just move over and uh, let Ann take the reins. And so that's what I did today, and Ann will be hosting. And my, my, that was a good idea. Um, as you all know, this season we've been focused on game-changing leadership for the oil and gas industry, and Ann invited Andrea Passman, who is Chief Operating Officer at Kairos Oil and Gas. Andrea is a petroleum engineer by training. She's uh, worked in and held senior leadership positions at CNX, Greenshale Energy, Halliburton. Um, Andrea is a Colorado School of Mines President's Council member. She's a mentor, a University of Denver Crimson and Gold Society member, and a member of the Food Bank of the Rockies Operations Committee. Andrea holds an MBA from the University of Denver, a degree in petroleum engineering from the Colorado School of Mines, and she has completed studies at both Carnegie Mellon's University's Tepper School of Business and Harvard Business School. One thing I love from this conversation with Andrea is, uh, is how she identified the key question for company leaders who want to create a culture of innovation. Such an interesting approach. So if you would like uh, to know more about this podcast and all we do at Adam and Team, you can check out our website at energythinks.com. Now, I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did between Anne and game-changing leader, Andrea Passman. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Energy Thinks podcast. Um, as I've told you, I was recently lucky enough to hear you speak um, to a leadership program that I'm involved with in Colorado about intrapreneurship, not entra, intrapreneurship. And for those that don't know, which I've realized there's quite a few, is um, intrapreneurship is when the principles of entrepreneurship are practiced within the boundaries of a company or a firm. So an entrepreneur is a person who takes on the responsibility to innovate new ideas, products and processes, um, or any new invention within the organization. And this caught my attention because a lot of what I do for Adamantine Energy is work with companies on ESG strategies. Um, and, and that requires innovation within their companies, all this growing pressure um, on oil and gas companies and how do they adapt? They have to do that from within. Um, so it really intrigued me. So um, as we're pushing companies to be more innovative and prove that they're sustainable, they have to show this internal innovation. And we don't often think, think about what it actually takes to develop solutions within companies and actually reach execution. I'm dealing with that day to day with clients, but it sounds like you're an expert at this. So I, I want to dive into it. So to start us off, can you talk a little bit about what stalls innovation within companies? I'm interested in the obstacles companies are facing, even amongst significant pressure to make progress on issues related to ESG. So what stalls them? You know, I think there's a lot of reasons, but the number one reason is that uh, a lot of times when companies talk about innovation, they just let it be a free for all. 
And it really has to have purpose and connection to something that the company aligns with strategically. So for example, ESG, right? When I talk about ESG uh, inside of Keras, and this is really hot topic right now, I talk about connecting it to us and what we're doing on a daily basis. So uh, I'm from Alaska, I'm a pioneer. I grew up in a gold mine. Uh, our environment was extremely important to us growing up. And my dad and my grandfather and everyone up there in Alaska was always like, this land is a gift. We have to take care of it. It's our home, it's our backyard, don't screw it up. And when I think about that and how important that was to me as a child growing up, that's the same message I'm saying to the people of Keras and our company about ESG, especially environmental here in Colorado and in the Rockies and really oil and gas in the way forward and what our um, nation wants, right? We have to align with that. So for that to have purpose and innovation to connect to ESG for, for the people of Keras, it's like, yeah, this is our backyard. Many of our employees love to uh, hunt and fish and hike and ski. We do not want to screw this up in any way, shape, or form. And we don't want to be guys. We live here. So connecting innovation to a purpose is specific. And, you know, when you think about ESG, you often don't think about innovation with that. You know, but we've seen uh, some great ideas. One example is we now have a closed-loop flowback system to completely reduce emissions during flowback, which has been amazing. Uh, you know, normally that's something you outsource and you pay millions of dollars a year to do. That's now something Keras does internally. When you think about entrepreneurship and how that's associated to innovation, you know, there's a couple of other things too that just right out of the bat will make your company fail or you as an individual fail. You gotta have an executive sponsor. Someone at the top has to be pulling for you, your innovation team, your entrepreneurship team, the purpose of it, that's key. You got to set the vector. That goes to back to what we talk about. You know, um, there's a thing out there, all thrust, no vector. That happens a lot with entrepreneurship. Great ideas all over the place. But once again, connecting it to that purpose and the strategy in your company. I think uh, the other thing that really solves that entrepreneurship is not spending enough time in the problem stage, asking a lot of questions, talking to as many people as possible, going really deep asking the question, and this is one of my favorite questions in the whole entire world, what else, what else, what else? Um, really understanding the risk and benefits of what you're doing, um, knowing when to pivot, when to bail on something that's just not working and, um, and when to hand it over as well. You know, it's your baby a lot of times, but maybe you're not the baby, you know, the person to take your baby across the finish line and, and when to hand that over. And then finally, um, celebrating success. You know, you, you got to sing it from the top of the trees when things go really well and uh, make sure that you're driving that forward. So, you know, if you're not doing all those things, you're you're guaranteed to fail from an entrepreneurship perspective. That's really interesting, especially with the executive sponsor piece of this, um, just because we, we see so much fracture within companies sometimes of what priorities are. So I, I totally agree with that, that you really need that that executive sponsor and that buy-in. So I find that really interesting. Um, when I heard you speak to the leadership program, you also talked about building a culture of entrepreneurship when you aren't at the top, you know, and, and this goes into this as well. You know, I run into this with companies. I'll work with departments 
that are under pressure to reduce emissions, recruit more diverse candidates, reduce water use, increase efficiency, but their culture doesn't breed innovation. Um, sometimes it's stifled. Um, what can listeners do if they aren't at the top of their organization, but want to build a culture of entrepreneurship in their company? Yeah, so I think there's uh, about five different ways that I've seen for this to come about. And let me talk about the wrong way to do this, which I personally have done. Uh, I remember when I was at my previous company very early in my career, uh, you know, I was jumping up and down saying, we've got to go drill deep, dry Utica wells in Pennsylvania. You know, the geologists are saying, this is great. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? And, you know, nobody, I thought nobody was listening to me. Um, so one day the CEO comes walking by who just happens to be, you know, two layers above me at that point in time in my career. And he said, Hey, you know, I really like what you're doing over here in the program. And I thought an open door, I will run through it and tell him my great idea and up my entire chain of command, uh, and just stick my neck on the line. Um, needless to say, when my boss came around and my boss's boss came around, uh, they were both a little disappointed that I went around them a lot disappointed and thought that I was a loose cannon and a China, uh, a bull in a China shop at that point in time. So, you know, going about it that way is not the right way to get your ideas out there. When you think about um, what you can do when entrepreneurship is not foundational in your company, there are ways to go about that. You can propose it to your manager as, um, you know, a part of your job or role or even a side hustle like the entrepreneurship czar out there uh, too. You can build a coalition, you know, safety in numbers, a group of people that really are innovative in the company. I'm always a big believer in, you know, five is the perfect number out there, really 5.5 according to Harvard, but uh, you get five or six people, you go, you propose this, you know, safety numbers that you guys want to put this, put some structure around it. Uh, you could be a corporate hacker. This has risk, and it depends on how much risk in your company is uh, willing to take up. But that's really about looking for those things and those seeds inside the company where you can really take that and just try to run with it. Uh, you can, you know, propose a very specific project to build uh, an entrepreneurship or as an engine or an incubator in your company. Lots of resources out there on how to do that. Um, you know, go look at Harvard, go look at MIT, and also. You know, just if it's something and you're just putting your toe in the water, a great way to get entrepreneurship uh, off the ground in any company is to look for recent examples of innovation and uh, identify those and promote them, right? Even if you're just at the first layer in an organization, you can say, oh, so-and-so just came up with this great idea, this happened in our company, uh, to put uh, hybrid electric vehicles in the field so that we could reduce our emissions and save on fuel. And it was like a little tiny idea, but then it turned into this big, huge thing because somebody was chirping about the guy in supply chain that went and did this. And next thing you know, we have hybrid vehicles in the field, like just an amazing thing like that, a little thing that turned into a big thing. So, you know, those are five ways. Propose it as a side hustle, build a coalition, be a corporate hacker, build an engine and incubator, and then just, you know, sing it from the top of the trees to get the ideas out there. I love that. And one well, when I've thought about this before and tried to help, you know, the companies that we work with get buy-in for their ideas or 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 build this culture is is helping them understand what decision makers need to hear related to ideas and innovation. How do you how do you think cost and then sort of these 
this progress value, I guess, or, or sustainable long-term value, how do you how do you recommend balancing those in in pitches? So when it comes to you know cost and and value, I think you have to fundamentally take a step back. And I know I'm always thinking about four very specific questions. And regardless of its entrepreneurship, innovation, any project, I mean, this is really uh, what I'm thinking about it. As an engineer, it's always about projects. So from a corporate and executive level perspective is, do we want to pursue this? Does it align with our purpose and our current initiatives that we have in the company? There's a lot of great ideas. Sometimes the timing is not right. Yeah, maybe the cost is too high. We'll get to cost in a minute. Um, you know, the value is there, but it's not the value we need right now as a company to move the ball forward. And especially right now, stuff moves so fast, we're in a vacu world. Number two is, can we execute it? Does it align with our core competencies? Yeah, it can be a great idea, but as a company, is it something that you can own and really get across the finish line? Those are key questions. Uh, number three, if it takes off in the best possible way, Will the benefits be worth it? So that definition around value and what it really brings to the company or to the employees or whatever the piece is, is key. And then this is probably the most important question of all of them. Are the risks such that the damage will not be irrecoverable if things go wrong? I mean, that is a key thing, right? Because anytime you do something new, there's a level of risk. But you know, if it goes completely off the rails, which projects do sometimes, is it going to be something that we cannot recover from? You know, when it comes to things like ESG, that's where you know, you know, it's going to be a little bit more tacit. So when it comes to those four questions and how it aligns with costs and value, if you can't answer those first, then we're never going to throw money into it. And a lot of times there's no money for innovation projects you have to dig in and you have to go find that. You have to go find spare change in the budget. You have to find things that you're going to replace. For example, our safety team just brought in a company called Blackline, which is amazing. We had, um, we had a contractor last year go driving off a mountain, just wasn't paying attention. And we lost him for two hours out in the field because his vehicle rolled uh, 2000 feet down the side of a mountain and he had to climb back out. He, you know, he magically didn't get hurt. Um, but because of that, we, we weren't able to track him and find him. And he was in an area that didn't have cell phone coverage. So we moved, safety brought us this great tool called Blackline, which is satellite based. It actually has all of the gas monitoring data in it live. It feeds into our uh, centralized control center. And you know now everyone in the field has a Blackline monitor and the Blackline actually would have gone off because it would have been jostled around in his vehicle and everything. And we could have gotten to him within minutes instead of hours. Talk about changing that. And so what they did to get that across the line was they showed us the cost of our existing monitoring system. And they also showed us the cost if, um, you know, had, had we had that in there, how quickly we could have gotten to him much faster, even from, you know, his safety and his medical perspective and project across the line. I mean, it took us maybe half an hour to approve that. Super quick. I so love that. the things that are game changers. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool to hear. Um, and in this entrepreneurship space, I think Keras is a really interesting test case. You know, they're under the same pressures as other oil and gas companies to be more environmentally friendly, improve governance, among other things. But they're also dealing with a very tough regulatory environment. Anyone in Colorado knows this. Um, and the unique impacts of natural gas markets 
which are different than those of oil. And, and your company is often tasked with implementing rules that are made for companies with predominantly oil production in residential areas and in, in the DJ basin versus where you are in the peons. So, um, you know, in, in more rural operate, rural areas where you operate. So I'm curious with, um, as a leader within Keras, how do you build a culture of entrepreneurship to mitigate those kinds of impacts? Um, and as a company, how have you approached this tough environment over the last, I don't know, six years or so? You know, Keras really looks at it as a competitive advantage to be able to operate in this kind of environment. And we call it our social license to operate. So it's really our ability to meet those regulations and oftentimes exceed those regulations that are very important to us. Also, just when we look at our shareholders, when we look at our investors, our in banks, this is an imperative for them, regardless of the regulations that are out there. And I will tell the rest of the world that if they think Colorado isn't the model, everybody else is going to be going this way too. You know, I've worked in California. Colorado is even more strict than, than California. You know, and you look at Appalachia, which was my last basin that I worked with, it is another level here. But if we don't think that this isn't what the world wants, we're all being a little naive uh, in that perspective. So for us, it's about making it a competitive advantage. And how we do that is we really embody this in um, everyone all the way out to the pumper level. And specifically, we have an option here called uh, multi-skilled operators, where we teach them the why this is so important. And not only that, but it's like, it's not environmental, it's not their team job to go take care of this. This is part of our social license to operate. Therefore, every employee in the company has to do what they can when they're on site, when they're in our fields to make sure that they're meeting those needs. And then once again, connecting it back to what we talked about earlier, purpose, right? And why is this meaningful to you and your core values as an individual? We live here, it's our backyard. We want to take care of it. You know, I was um, listening to uh, a, a panel recently, and it was really interesting. There was a, uh, a board member, former board member of ConocoPhillips, um, Arjun was his name, really progressive guy. And we had another CEO from another uh, Colorado company, Midstream Size. Um, and then, you know, between the two of them, it was interesting to see the dichotomy and the spread in terms of our thinking. And I think that we have to be progressive. Arjun was like, yeah, there are not, uh, you know, there is not a direct path to see what 2050 is going to look like, you know, from an emissions perspective, from an environmental perspective. Uh, but if we're not doing our part to help us get there, then we're going to get left behind. So, you know, when you look at the big companies and yeah, people are saying, you know, Chevron and BP, they're all making these things to go alternative and it's not real. Well, you have to put the vision out there, and then we'll figure out a way to get there, right? And if we're not going to be a key part of that story, you know, look at the Canary Project here in Denver um, with Romer and what he's doing about selling, um, you know, low methane gas to Excel, like that is a game changer. And we have to embrace these game chambers if we're going to, you know, go into the future. So for us, competitive advantage all the way in terms of just educating our employees and making sure that they're owning it and that they get the why behind it, why it matters so much. I love that because we've recently started talking to service companies in that realm of how can they think of ESG as their competitive advantage as well, or midstream, you know, how are these sectors of business going to use being innovate, you know, using innovation to be progressive um, for everyone through the value chain and use that as their competitive advantage. We're totally thinking the same way. I'd love to hear that. Um, yes. So let's talk a little bit about values. 
um, really important recently and of course always, but it seems like they've come to the forefront of, of how oil and gas companies need to think about their values. And, you know, the oil and gas industry isn't conventionally known for being fast movers or early adopters. Although at Adamantine, we think that's changing. And of course we're pushing for that change. Um, but the expectations of millennials who are, you know, dominating population in raw numbers moving forward um, and becoming our, our investors and regulators and elected officials, um, investors themselves right now and the majority of the public are driving the need for progress. They want to see a decarbonized energy future. They want to see progress now. What kind of values do the industry and leaders like you need to cultivate to keep up with these evolving expectations? And has that changed with the pandemic, in your opinion? Uh, yes, it has changed with the pandemic. So, you know, I often think about my personal core values, like what's important to me and how does that connect to my company? And I'll say I've worked with companies in the past where that wasn't the case and that wasn't the place for me. You know, but when I look at my personal values, I have six. I know that's a lot. They've evolved over time, but it's transparency, authenticity, learning, fun, passion, and inclusion. Those are like what drive me every day. I'm looking at that checklist and I'm like, what am I hitting on my personal values every day? How can I bring that to work? How can I align that with my company? Uh, you know, and what can I do to really drive and increase those values? And that's no different than any millennial, uh, you know, iGen who's ever out there. You know, I'm Gen X. I'm like the lost, nobody knows us generation because there's none of us. And we're actually the barbell generation right now. So we have the boomers who are retiring and we have a plethora of young workers who are highly motivated if we connect their core values to their purpose and meaning and work and what the core values are in the company. So if we're not doing that as leaders, we're failing the generations that are surrounding us um, and really all of the people that we're working with. When you look at what's really happened in the last year and year and a half is, you know, if companies are not taking a stance on inclusion and really making sure that they're learning back to one of the core values, learning about what that means and why that's important. Um, I think we're missing the boat on that part as well. I think when it comes to really um, engaging your workers, right, especially in terms of the pandemic and what has happened from work from home, right? Connecting people to purpose so that we all have a shared vision and purpose, no matter where you're working. You know, in oil and gas, the field workers never stopped. I mean, it was just like, yeah, the pandemic went on. And the next day they, you know, went to the field and they pumped their wells and they launched their pigs and they calibrated their meters. They did all the same things they did before. And so making sure that everyone um, throughout the entire organization is connected to what we want, comes back to authenticity and transparency. I think as leaders, we have to up our transparency in what's happening in companies. I will tell you when the pandemic started, we scrambled as well. It was like, okay, what's gonna be our plan if you know half of our workforce gets sick? How are we gonna keep the wells going? How are we gonna keep production going? All the way from what are we gonna do if there's an outbreak in the office? Uh, so how do we engage our people and let them know and it's okay to go back and say we don't have all the answers and we did that early on we're working on answers we're interested in your feedback that's a part of transparency and authentic authenticity and then once again you just look at what's happened with 
uh, BLM, what's happened with our political environment. Like people are stressed out, you know, what's happening in India right now with COVID. Yeah, like here in the US, we're like, hey, great, we're coming out, you know, but we have many workers who have families over there and we have to ask them how they're doing and what place they're in as well. So, you know, when it comes to what's really changed, and those values, you know, once again, transparency, authenticity, learning, fun, fashion, inclusion. I think it's really more about how do we engage with our people with their whole lives, not just their work lives. And that's been a big change for a lot of leaders in, in the last year and a half. Yeah, that's really refreshing to hear. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that my generation as millennials, that's how we think of it is, is our company should reflect all of our lives, not our work life. I love how you said that. We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash gamechanger. That's energythinks.com backslash gamechanger. And now, back to the show. And... and in the same line of that, you know, I help, you know, I help run a program for emerging leaders that you engaged with. And, and so, you know, I've been interested in recruiting the next generation of oil and gas leaders. And one of the things that I've learned as part of this journey is that many of the talent pipelines to our industry are not as diverse as they could be. And that's effectively missing out on some high performing leaders with really transformational ideas. Um, when you think, you know, are we trying to recruit tech leaders um, or are we just trying to get you know, those that have come up in these traditional pipelines from traditional universities that we engage with. And so I, I'm curious what progress you've seen on this front and what still needs added focus to ensure that our talent pipelines are well saturated with diverse, energetic and creative leaders um, for this energy future? Uh, you know, I think that's a great question. And, you know, when I started my career and things have changed dramatically in this industry, um, I mean, certainly even when I went to Colorado School of Mines, I believe we were about 20% female at that point in time. One of my very first jobs was offshore in the Gulf of Mexico as a production engineer. And um, there was no facilities for women out there. So uh, luckily I had a, a mentor out there, Russell, he was a company man. And Russell said, um, you know, why don't we take a mattress and drag it into the electronics room because that'll lock from the inside and it's air conditioned. It was like hundred degrees out there too. So that you can feel safe and comfortable sleeping at night. And I was like, thank you, Russell. But I mean, that was the situation then. And now things have changed dramatically in terms of, of that. And I think when it comes to people, diversity, DEI, all we want is we want to feel like we fit in. Like we're not an outcast and that we're not different. So what are we doing to make sure that people feel like they fit in? Because that's one of the biggest questions out there is, do I feel like I fit in? Am I comfortable here? And to move the needle, we really must uh, embrace a broader vision of what DEI is. You know, a lot of time there's statistics that are out there. Companies will hit statistics. 
it's easy to do. It's, you know, fill butts and seats, right? But it's about learning, innovation, creativity, flexibility, equity, human dignity. Those are the things that we have to look at from a demographic perspective that diversity just numbers does not. And this is really about effectiveness. And it's really about reshaping power structures. That's a key thing of that, right? If you do not have diverse individuals in key power positions within companies, nothing is going to change. HR numbers, statistics, ESG reports, none of that matters. And when you look at that, it's like, how do you do that? When I was young, you know, and I was looking up for people who looked like me to fit in, they weren't there. You know, you look at oil and gas executive females, it's less than 1%, even today. So, you know, 25 years ago when I started out, that definitely was not there, you know, and then you look at diverse individuals as well, you know, and they're looking, multicultural people are looking for their people and they're not seeing as many and it's much improving. How do we change that? We have to have mentors, advocates, and allies. That's what has to change. And so, you know, I now look for my personal board of advisors. It's a diverse group of people. It's predominantly men. Men have pulled me through. They have been there for me as my advocates, allies, and mentors, and still are. Now I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm looking for women. I'm looking for multicultural people that I can help out and I can pull through both as, and I have been all of them. I have been a mentor. I have been an advocate. I have been an ally. If we're not sure about the differences between those, a mentor is really like your advisor. They're here to here to help you guide you along in your career. An ally is making sure that um, you're educating yourself and you're being engaged in issues on, in the workplace and you're being an ally to that person. And a sponsor and advocate, this is the hardest one. This is a big one. This is basically utilizing your influence and your credibility to help an individual and sponsor them for opportunities. That's that's a big thing to put your neck out on the line and you want to make sure you're doing that for the people that really matter. So it's those three things that are going to be change, game changers in the industry. And I'll say, you know, I mean, I, I sponsor and um, mentor to uh, mid-level manager women out there in the industry on the civil side. And, um, you know, and I also work with other multicultural people to mentor. You have to be intentful about it and have um, your mindset on what you want to do specifically to help pull through the others to pay it for a bottle. That's really interesting. And, and what you touched on about feeling like you fit in really resonated with me. I recently worked with a company who they're approaching it as diversity, equity, and belonging. Um, yeah. Trying to figure out how they make a culture of belonging in a predominantly, you know, white male company um, that has been that way for a long time. And, and it's going to be a challenge. So I, I like how you're talking about that. And um, as you were talking about women, you know, we've seen shocking statistics about women leaving the workforce in light of the pandemic. Um, there's a lot less flexibility in their lives as, as we approach these challenges. And so, you know, what progress needs to be made to ensure women reach the executive level as you have, or, or what needs to change in how oil and gas companies are approaching flexibility? You know, so I think um, when you look at women in general, and this goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about between mentors, allies, and advocates, high potential women are way over mentored. <laughs> we are way under sponsored, right? Which gets back into the sticking your neck out on the line. So uh, this is my shout out to all the men and people in power out there and women as well. 
um, quit looking to mentor women. We can find mentors. Everybody knows what mentoring is now. You just have to go find people that you connect with and have skill sets that you uh, like and see if, you know, it's like speed dating. Does this work out? Are we a fit? You know, yes, go forward, mentor. It's the sponsorship piece that is more difficult people. And sponsorship is not like mentorship. It's not something that um, you typically go out and ask for. It's something that is given to you and that you are doing, you are looking to do to help people pull through. So when it comes to women in the workplace, it's those sponsors and helping them find those next opportunities, whether they're, you know, partially work from home because of childcare situations. I mean, that's been a huge issue across the board through the pandemic. I know a number of people that um, honestly quit their jobs and women in positions that are pretty high up there because they felt like they weren't there for their families and children. And now that we're getting back to a normal, you know, kids are going back to school, they want to come back into the workforce, you know, but there's this gap now, right, from a resume perspective. So it's making sure that as a leader, you're being a sponsor to say, rather than take that resume and chuck it because there's a gap, sitting down with them and saying, you know, how have you kept your skills up during that point in time? You know, how are we going to get you back into the workforce and asking those key questions and being a sponsor and also looking at um, the women and, and really the multicultural people that have been hit by this in your in your network and saying, how can I pull you back in and how can I get you back into the workforce and also not penalizing them for, you know, different um, work schedules or work from home or hybrid work models and not just them, but any of our employees, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be penalizing them for that. We should be looking for ways to engage with them and to help bring them back into the organization as well as make sure that we're elevating their careers just as much as the people who are showing up in person. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, and, you know, the leadership program that I'm working with right now, we're, we're focused on emerging leaders and we were really careful to not put an age bracket around that either, because, you know, someone that transitions their career from one industry to the next at 30 shouldn't be penalized um, for that if they still are interested in the same trajectory and, and same ambition as somebody else. So I, I love to hear that too. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to shift a little bit to you specifically. Um, speaking very pragmatically, what game-changing efforts are you focusing on for yourself and your team going into this summer as we're kind of getting back into the groove of, of normal life? Uh, so I think the biggest thing uh, is there's like two things. One, and this is obviously I'm a raging extrovert, uh, so, which is really rare for engineers, uh, but reconnecting and having some fun, that's probably number one. You know, we've been doing the Zoom virtual thing for so long. And granted, I've spent a lot of, a lot of time in the field, which has been uh, really a blessing during this time because just it's made it easier to get out there and spend more time, which is where, you know, 80% of our workforce is in the field. And, but bringing the fun back to work a little bit has been keen. It's, we tried to have some fun during the pandemic. It's hard and it's cheesy and you know, but even cheesy fun is okay. So that team building element, you know, the simple thing of just, you know, having some lunches, um, bringing leadership development programs back in person again, where we can, that's been key. Uh, the second part is developing new skills because we did get a little stagnant because we were struggling just to work for so long. And people were really struggling with their personal lives and what was happening socially um, and culturally out there. So from Karis's perspective, what we're trying to do now is really create a bunch of mini CEOs in the company because we want people to take off. We want them to run their own businesses. So 
one of our key paradigms here is financial literacy to the pumper level. That is a big push that we have. And so in creating a bunch of CEOs, you have to set up guardrails is what we call them as well. So you can be a CEO. Here's the guardrails that you need to run your company within that align with the strategy of the company. You know, and, and granted, sometimes people push against the guardrails and that's okay. We're just gonna redefine what the guardrails are on that. So right now, a big part of our leadership development program that we're working on with our frontline leaders is how do we turn you all into mini CEOs so that you can run your business effectively and it'll roll up into what the company looks like. And and really that's a, it's kind of ending the notion of the middle manager. I will tell you, I think middle managers are a waste of money. Like if you're not empowering them, to go get their business done and they're just managing numbers. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So making many CEOs and setting up the guardrails and just letting them go, having some fun and reconnecting at the same time is, is key on that. I think when it comes to myself, I'm doing a little bit of soul searching at the moment and wondering what my next phase is gonna look like too. Um, you know, I mean, I think ESG is huge. I think uh, alternative energies and how that's going to influence our industry is huge. Analytics is huge. Um, I mean, it's even interesting, like cryptocurrency. And I know there's companies out there utilizing flare gas to produce power to crypto mining. Uh, you know, I mean, this is the stuff that's happening and we got to stay sharp and on top of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm putting my toe in the water and seeing what else is next to from that perspective and just trying to, to you know, up my learning as well. Well, I'm already excited to reach out in a year and see what you've been up to, because as a raging extrovert, I have no doubt that you're going to find something cool to dip your toe in the water on. Um, I love that. Um, so what are you most excited about or looking forward to professionally and personally right now with, with all of us trying to reset? So one, I mean, I have been trying to reconnect with my personal board of advisors in person. Uh, you know, that's been an important part of what I want. When I talk about your personal board of advisors, I'm talking about the people that are your mentors, your allies, your advocates. Uh, they're people I have collected throughout my life and career. Sometimes I call them a lot. Sometimes I call them a little. Um, you know, there's some that I I, I know I'm having lunch with um, one of him, Paul DeBonis, uh, on Thursday. We haven't seen each other in person in a very long time. And just to be able to do that, you know, I'm glad we're both vaccinated and feel like we can do that. You know, that's key. And then, and then other pieces as well. And part of that is just making sure that um, one, not only reconnecting, but two, talking about what did we learn in the last year and a half? And I will tell you, my job has changed a ton and not just in the last year and a half, but really the speed of, of which things have changed in our industry and really in how fast stuff moves in our world. You know, my job used to probably be like 80% technical, you know, very engineering, subsurface focused. And um, now it really feels like my job is more 20 to 30% technical because our industry has definitely become much more manufacturing oriented, much more utility oriented. And now it's about 40% finance and 40% psychology. And so if I think my job is 40% finance, I want everyone else to think that their job is also heavily finance, right? Because we're free cash flow driven. You know, we're much better about managing our balance sheets and our income statements now than we used to be as an industry. It's not just about putting up all the time. And then the 40% psychology, that has been a big part of it. And you can call it psychology, leadership, but this goes back to, um, I'm no longer managing workers, I'm managing lives. Things became really blurred in the last year, even more so. 
And you know, my style as a leader is to be visionary. I'm big on drawing a picture of the future. And then I ask tons of questions. How are we gonna get there? Like I said earlier, my favorite question is what else? What else? What else? That doesn't just apply to work anymore. That now applies to people's lives. You know, when, you, when you're looking at someone on Zoom and you see they're sitting in their kid's toy room and it's a disaster back there, it makes you wonder, oh my gosh, how much are they struggling with childcare right now? And how can I help them get through that? And it's simply asking a question of like, how can we help you? How can I help you? What can I do to make this easier on you? I know you've got challenges at home. I can see them, right? And that whole life, you know, it's, I know um, one of my, uh, one of the people I work with, instead of doing our one-on-ones weekly via Zoom, we met in a park. <laughs> it was in between our two houses. We met there for our one-on-ones. We sat outside at a park table, rain, snow, uh, sun or shine. And it was just a moment for him to get away. I would show up with two coffees. We would talk about what was going on. We would talk about life. So once again, no longer just managing workers, managing lives. And, and you know, that, that takes a little bit of um, a piece out of you. So personally, um, in terms of that style and management changing, and this is a big thing right now, you got to take care of yourself too and your mental health. And for me, once again, it goes back to my core values and making sure I'm fulfilling all of those. I need some more fun in my life right now, which this is the roaring 20s now. So, you know, it's going to be mayhem out there. I think it started at our house uh, last Friday with a dinner party, but uh, more of that for sure. More fun. Mm -hmm. That's exciting to hear. I I hope that listeners model how you're thinking about these things of of how you're changing your leadership style to adapt to the needs of others. And and I agree. I think that we need to bring some fun into this after the last year and a half. And I hope that that fun will lead to innovation, new ideas, all of that. So um, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on the Energy Things podcast. Um, I'm excited to see the innovation that comes from the current and future teams you lead, I have, I have no doubt that they will. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Anne. I'm, I'm glad we had this chance to talk. That's our episode for today. Wasn't it a great one? Thank you so much to Andrea for taking the time to share her insights with us. Um, one of the things I found really game-changing for me was how clearly Andrea is able to articulate her leadership philosophy even enumerate uh, these elements of different uh, of different parts of her leadership style. So I'm gonna just hit rewind and listen to this podcast again from the beginning because I think there's a lot that can inform my own thinking about how to embrace leadership in my work every day. I'd like to know what you found interesting and insightful. So visit our website at energythinks.com backslash podcast and let me know. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. If you like what you're hearing, uh, please take a moment and rate us. I wanna thank the Adam and Team team for making this possible. Scott Marshall, Michael Tanner, Lindsay Gage, and of course, a huge thanks to Ann Carto, who comes up with spectacular ideas. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours prosperity, happiness, and good health.